hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, we are live at the Bitbuckle Society annual meeting. This is the seventh meeting in uh, April 6th, 2019. Uh, we we're live recording as soon as the meeting just ended about 25 minutes ago. Here with three retina specialists who attended the meeting who are willing to contribute and talk about what they enjoyed from the meeting and kind of lessons they learned. Uh, and I'm going to go probably from my side over to the opposite side. I have Dr. Nika Bagheri from California Retina Consultants in Santa Barbara, California. Thanks for having me. I have Dr. Margaret Grevin from Wake Forest University. Thanks for having me, Jay. And last but not least, Dr. Will Park from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks, Jay. So why don't we just go around? I mean, I'll let um, you know, Will had a presentation about advice we can get to a little bit later. Um, you know, Margaret, you want to lead us off? Anything that you know really stood out to you that you enjoyed from the meeting? Anything you learned? A surgical pearl? Uh, anything you can start be kind of random about this? What was kind of your big takeaway? Yeah, well, um, so just in general, I think this meeting is great because we get to hear from people about very practical tips um, to use every day in the office and um, in the operating room. So this is my first time at this meeting, um, but I, I really enjoyed it, and I'll take away a lot of, of little tips um, from throughout the meeting. But I wanted to talk about one of the sessions today, um, which was the surg surgical innovations um session. And um, during that, one of the most interesting uh, talks I thought was by uh, James Steffeter from um, Mass Ioneer. So he talked about a novel hydrogel that he's been working on developing for retinal tamponade. So the problem that he and one of his, I believe it's his co-fellow, identified was um, that in vitreoretinal retinal surgery, um, one of the, the main issues that our patients face after surgery is having to position and then also having uh, poor vision after surgery. And so um, he's been working on developing a hydrogel um, with some chemists and has actually developed a clear hydrogel that could work as a retinal tamponade agent. And I think it holds a lot of promise. They've done some animal studies, and so far it's looking promising. So I was really excited to hear about that. And I think our patients could really potentially in the future benefit from not having to position after surgery. Yes. One thing that Maria Barakal actually mentioned was how silicone oil was first developed uh, during the AIDS epidemic. And I thought that was very informative and educational and that we don't really have something like a hydrogel that's been able to uh, perform the function that that they're suggesting here, so it would be revolutionary. I mean, that whole segment, and again, my, my disclosure, again, is this is not going to be some narcissistic thing, because I helped work on the program, so I'm glad you guys enjoyed the program. You did a great job. I mean, but that's, this is supposed to be self-congratulatory, <laughs> even though it may sound this way. But, I mean, the Surgical Innovation Event, first of all, was a non-CME session. Was, I, thought, I thought it was one of my favorite sessions. Will spoke during that, and James did a great job. He said, I mean, vitreous substitutes are actually a really interesting area. Um, there's two interesting parts to it, like you mentioned. One is the science that we need it. I think the second part of it is it's really it seems really really difficult to actually get a vitreous substitute approved to use in a human eye for obvious safety reasons or regulatory reasons. Um, and they've done a I mean commendable job putting that together. Yeah, their persistence at building their lab out and raising money already for it and in considering another round of capital raising, they've really put a lot of thought and effort in this over the course of a couple of years. It sounds like so. Very impressive. And just for people listening at home, this hydrogel polymer that they've developed, you inject it through a 27-gauge needle. It's liquid, but then in the heat of the eye, it forms 
a solid within a few minutes. And then it will dissolve, begin dissolving at two weeks and is completely gone from the eye in four weeks. And I mean, and the advantages you can imagine would be maybe you can see through it better than you can see through gas. So maybe you're not committing to oil, for example, in a monocular patient. Perhaps you could travel with this in a plane. That'd be huge, especially for patients I take care of with the fly places. And positioning was the big thing, right? Was like Margie mentioned that earlier. Like if you have something that seems to have a decent surface tension that can tamponade, but unlike oil, goes away. Maybe you don't have the same risks we have where you have to sometimes emulsification and, and permanent issues with oil droplets. You have this sometimes unexplained vision loss from oil removal. There, there are issues with our current. So this is like a great example. They saw an area that needed a need, like you said, it needed to be filled, and they're really trying very hard to fill it. Um, you know, just finishing up on innovations, you know, and Will, again, we'll plug just briefly. You talked about this, this device you developed for external drainage. Mike Jumper came on the program, talked about his external drainage needle technique already. We've talked about maybe its value in even the age of vitrectomy of draining externally to prevent the contents of the subretinal space from being exposed to the vitreous cavity. Maybe that's not good from a PVR perspective. You also tell us a little bit about the device and like how it's designed and what, it, I mean, obviously you, you guys have developed it, but what does it kind of look like? What are the advantages of this over, for example, just a needle, if someone had a needle? Well, I, I think there are a lot of ways to, to drain externally. And I guess my biggest priority was just making, wondering whether who anybody else in the audience agreed with me and starting to start a conversation about whether we should be more uh, attentive to, um, the subretinal fluid when we fix retinal detachments, and uh, I personally think uh, that that the the less we allow the uh, the subretinal um, milieu to affect the vitreous cavity during repair, the hope I think uh, hopefully we'll prove this, but it, hopefully we'll have less PVR as a consequence of that. Our device is it's basically a scleral depressor with an extensible needle on the inside of it that uh, can attach to a, um, a line to the machine so you can have active aspiration from it. And I like it because for me, it's a very controlled way to uh, localize where you're going to do your, your external drainage. Uh, and I do it during both primary buckles and vitrectomies for retinal attachments. And uh, at this point, feel pretty comfortable that it's a safe way for me to put the needle where I want it from an external position. But I, I, I more than the device itself, I would just emphasize that I think that external drainage is a viable way to um, address retinal detachments in a, in a variety of situations. So. so, Will, you mentioned that the reason for this is the thought process that the milieu underneath the retina could be PVRogenic. And you also mentioned during your talk today that you've been sending the subretinal fluid mm -hmm. that you aspirate for testing. And I was just wondering, what, what are the results of that testing? What are you testing for and what has it shown so far? We, we just started that aspect of it and we, we like how easy it is to get that fluid out. And actually, the, the way we do it is we, we drain the fluid subretinally prior to doing any vitrectomy. So the vitreous is still tamponading the break in theory. So we can get a subretinal fluid specimen and then a vitreous fluid specimen, which we think are pretty distinct from one another and comparing their interleukin uh, profile and their uh, optical density and some other characteristics of the fluid to see how, and then look at whether a chronic detachment differs from a uh, more acute detachment or one with a large break differs from one with a small break. It, we don't have any results yet. We're, we just started that a few weeks ago, but it's exciting. It, from a quantitative perspective, I always think it's interesting because sometimes patients ask, we want to know how long a detachment has been there. And all of our studies that are surgical are reliant on symptoms. You know, Margaret and the group, they published a great paper on MacOff RDs. It always has to be symptom-based because 
I tell my patients this sometimes. I'm, I, it's not like I'm looking at rings in a tree where I can just look at a detachment and say, oh, this is four weeks versus five weeks versus not two months. You know, you can get ideas. There's certain things like a demarcation line or um, certain bold or, or hydration lines that can tell you approximately how long it is. But it would be also interesting if this fluid, if you got enough of a sample, if you could look at the fluid and there's certain some protein contrast that you look at and be like, oh, if it has a protein content of X, this detachment has been for X amount. Could there be prognostic value to that? Because we know that from PVR studies, again, all based on history, a chronic detachment is a risk factor for PVR. But what exactly does that consist of would be interesting to know, too. One of the beauties of this uh, technique is how effectively the actual the, the equipment was actually designed. So the fact that it's so well controlled, I, I believe you had some good suggestions from the audience um, in terms of future applications. Uh, potentially, I think Gita Lilawami mentioned how it could maybe even be performed in office procedures. Mm -hmm. And uh, Nina Barakal mentioned how potentially for gene therapy, uh, those kinds of applications in the future. So the design of the instrument that you're so well controlled, you can depress in that location, you know, insert the needle and retract it at different depths in that exact same location and slowly come off, minimize the risk of subretinal hemorrhage, um, it, I thought was the most beautiful aspect of that. I mean, and not to just stick to the innovations, but again, it is the innovation, so it's some of the new stuff we're talking about. I mean, the last talk was about um, lighted through this lighted depressor. And uh, I mean, Nick and Margaret, you guys spoke as part of like this, this a younger surgeon uh, uh, panel that we put together, which I think is really important because there's issues you encounter when you go from different institutions in terms of what you encounter. And one of the things you know, I think I've been spoiled with is I was a fellow, so I always have someone to help me. So if I want to do depressed shaved or do anything that requires kind of three hands with illumination, then I don't need to, for example, put a chandelier and depress for myself, which has some advantages, but there's costs there and doesn't offer you the same tangential lightning that you may want in certain cases, especially if the retina is detached. Um, you know, Anika, that was one of the things you mentioned that you really like that lighted depressor idea. I mean, that's one of the things you said is sometimes difficult to adjust when you're operating alone. Yeah, so that's one thing that for for fellows. The fellows get blamed for a lot of things, you know, and that's not quite fair, but they are, for the majority of the part, very, uh, you know, helpful to have an extra pair of hands. When you transition to a private practice setting where you are multiple locations with uh, different resources available and different levels of skilled assistance available, uh, it's nice to use any techniques that you can to uh, have the most control and optimize your outcomes. I mean, it's, it's way cheaper than what Will did, which is he started a fellowship so that he can have fellows press for him, <laughs> which was expensive in a lot of ways. Yeah. So basically what you're referring to is, is Bojo Todorich right. presented right. his he, a prototype, essentially, of a um, piece that you can add on to any standard light pipe, 27, 25, and 23 gauge, and so that you can depress for yourself externally with the light pipe, with this added extension, um, while you're shaving the vitreous base, so that takes away the need for a skilled assistant intraoperatively. So that was a really cool design as well. And I mean, to clarify, I mean, for people using the dork system out there, there is like a lighted guard for the dork life. I've demoed it before. But the difference with this that was cool was that, and I don't know exactly where it seemed that it, it, you could adjust it and then it focuses all the light down in a very diffuse manner. So it's not just putting the light pipe on something where the light's still kind of direct in the wrong direction, but it's actually like, the transluminary we've seen, like the Shields use, for example, and other colleges using the clinic to look at tumors. This is very, very nice. It was quite image. bright. It was, a, it was a very good, yes, very good visualization of that. I mean, any other session? And we're going to end, I think, talking about wellness because I think that was a kind of the ending of the program. That was a very interesting in a lot of ways, and we could spend a half hour talking about that. But um, anything else you, you guys wanted to talk about for the meeting? I did want to highlight one of the crowd pleasers. I might have a little conflict of interest here, but Nathan Steinley's talk. <laughs> that was really good. So he gave a talk just to clarify on online reviews, and uh, it was more of a descriptive talk. 
but he has some good pearls of advice. So like, what did, what did you guys kind of take from that talk? <laughs> silence, silence. I'll, I'll, I'll go. Yeah. I, I, I don't. Uh, I'm trying carefully. From, this goes online too. So. <laughs> I'm I'm a, I'm an old guy from Minneapolis, so I'm not quite as up to date on all this stuff as, as everybody on the coast is. But I, what I did like was his suggestion that if you see a review from a patient, you think that that it deserves a little bit of uh, conversation with the patient to talk about it and troubleshoot it and see what you can do to get better. Just give them a call and and talk to the patient and. And sometimes they might take it down, but even if they don't, you'll learn something from the patient about how to make sure it doesn't happen again. I thought that was great. Some of the valuable information was also what's important to patients and, you know, the quality of the care you provide is not number one or two or three. So um, efficiency, their wait time, their interaction with the front desk staff um, is, you know, the source of the majority of complaints. I think we'll reference something that's interesting. Geography, I'm sure, plays a huge role in this. And where you are institutional-wise, I mean, Dr. D'Amico during the last session referenced that, for example, for him it doesn't necessarily matter, but you know, someone sitting next to me is like, well, you know, he's the head of a big academic department. It's different than depending on where you live. So if you're living in you know, a certain town, certain cities, it may not be as important. Just like if you look up restaurants in Yelp in San Francisco versus looking at Yelp in another city that's much smaller, you're going to get different numbers of reviews because people aren't using the information the same way. But, for example, you know, on the coast, you know, Nathan's part of your group, Nika, and, and I think it's probably very important. Miami it seems very important. Um, I'm by no means an expert on this subject. It's one of those things where people think that you know a lot of the subject because you've been asked to talk about it. Um, but people ask me to talk about it, and I've, so I've done a lot of reading just like Nathan has on, on this subject. And he's absolutely right. And I think the hardest part is the only way to combat negativity in a professional manner is with positivity. Well, said giving a cell phone, making a phone call, but also, unfortunately, and we're not used to this. It's something I don't really do well is sometimes just seeking positive reviews. So if you do get a negative review, you kind of need to seek that. Even though as physicians, that's not really what we're doing our job is to kind of seek someone to pat us on the back. It's like we're not just like our Uber drivers who are like, hey, please give me five stars before you check out. It kind of messes with the flow of the encounter. But in certain areas, it actually may be very important. I'd recommend somebody put together a course at Academy on social media <laughs> management, and I think that would be very successful. I wonder uh, if that course exists at ASRS or Academy uh, in 2019, because it very well might. Um, anything else? You know, Will, you said you want to just briefly talk about Adrian Scott gave a great call talk on sickle cell retinopathy during one of the surgical sessions. I mean, yeah, it wasn't, you know, this isn't quite as, uh, it's not an innovative surgical talk, but it's just to talk about the fundamentals of managing sickle cell retinopathy. And obviously, nobody's as good as big an expert on that as she is. And she was just the fundamentals that we all need to remember in terms of um, optimizing the anesthesia during surgery, avoiding issues that can increase intraocular pressure, like a retrograde bar block, uh, being attentive to the ischemic peripheral retina, and relieving traction using preoperative anti VEGF injection to stabilize things, much like in a diabetic. And she had some beautiful videos of just um, very efficiently but delicately managing these complicated detachments. I, I think the biggest takeaway I took from that talk, and it's common sense, and we, we know this, but we're busy and we're moving and we tend to equate things, especially if you're in training or a fellow resident, is sickle cell is not the same as diabetes, right? So a sickle TRD and a diabetic TRD are very different in terms of where the traction is, where the NVE is, the systemic status you have to manage. The role of anti-VEGF, you know, she spoke about she does like preoperative anti-VEGF three to seven days before. Um, and I don't think that's a bad idea if you have the surgery set up. But, for example, I don't think it's like diabetics where with protocol S you can inject patients at multiple times and, and kind of 
be okay with that, maybe regress their disease. I think sickle cell, I'm actually more worried about doing that because I think the risk of this crunch effect or causing tears may be more because the traction is more peripheral. Um, but yeah, that, that, it's a really good talk. One of the techniques that was described that I'm excited to incorporate was collapsing the scleral tunnel for sclerotomies. And Will, you said you do this? Yeah, retinal acupuncture, which is actually more like scleral acupuncture, not retinal acupuncture. Ideally, yeah, he he uh, he presented a great talk this year on uh, with leaky sclerotomies. He does mostly twenty three gauge, but for twenty three or twenty five or twenty seven, for that matter, sclerotomies that are leaking after surgery, rather than throwing a stitch, he takes a needle. Um, I think he said thirty or twenty seven gauge needle. And he basically perpendicularly um, puts the needle through the sclera over the tunnel uh, of the original trocar uh, pass and had some great videos of it stopping the leak on a very consistent basis. And uh, it's, it's slick and fast. And he, he told me about it informally at last year's Fit Buckle, and I've been doing it for a year too, and I think it, uh, it works the vast majority of the time. Do you use a needle or the other side of the trocar blade? Yeah, so that... And the reason you asked that, and Justin Towns is one of our colleagues, had incorporated it somewhere else, but that was something that he had shown you guys when you were fellows, right? Yeah. Cool. I know. I, I've he, only ever used the needle, but the trocar blade makes sense, too. I'm he, sure he, they both work. And what, again, I think he borrowed it from somewhere else. But one of the fellows showed him. This is how yeah. things get disseminated. Right. But basically, you just flip the trocar blade perpendicular to wherever your incision. You stab, it creates like a cross. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I'm, I'm not Kirk Paco where I can describe like where the tunnels are. I don't really visualize in 3D that well what's going on, but somehow that seems to help self-seal them. You know, whether it collapses the tunnel or whether it allows a little vitreous plug in there to, <laughs> yes. to come up to, to occlude it. I'm not sure that Ephraim or anybody else knows, but it's a, it's a pretty cool thing. You know, and we'll end in a couple seconds, but just we wouldn't be remiss. I mean, the, the last session was probably the most unique session was Dr. Carmen Pulifito. You know, we're not getting the well-publicized kind of struggles he's had and, um, you know, former chair of Baskin Palmer, former DUC. He gave a talk about physician wellness, professional ethics, and then the panel discussion after was super interesting. I mean, one of the things I thought was interesting was besides, again, the things that we're held to, the standard we're held to as a profession is, you know, the concept of boundaries, right? So, like, what is too much? And, and I think this is cultural, too. And you probably see this in the Midwest or Margaret in North Carolina. Like, patients are something very grateful, and they want to show that gratitude. And, and sometimes they view the doctor as part of their family almost, and they invite you to do things. I've been invited to houses for dinners or come this. I, and I usually am, am very conservative in terms of declining or being very polite about it. But, I mean, boundaries is kind of an interesting concept, Margaret. I mean, how do you balance that? If you do have someone who really, you know, wants to show gratitude to you, and they're willing to give you a gift. I just know it's interesting for the panel. Like, well, how much is too much of a gift, right, to where it's uncomfortable? Yeah. Well, I mean, first, I just want to say Dr. Puliafita's talk was really brave. And I think that um, it was very, um, he was very vulnerable and open. And I just, I commend him. And I think it was an extremely valuable discussion that we don't really hear about very much in the world of ophthalmology. And, you know, talking about ethics and talking about physician wellness there is a very high percentage of people who are struggling with mental illness or substance abuse, and it's not talked about. And I think it's important for us to be aware of that and to um, be on the lookout for it in our colleagues and in ourselves and to support people that we know who are going through struggles. 
Um, but to answer your question, Jay, I think that there's actually a specific monetary amount that you're supposed to um, right. deny. So, you but know, like, for example, re- yeah, I'm right. saying like if they invite you to hang out with their kids or yeah, go to I dinner mean, with I them. I think I mean, in general, having social interactions with your patients is um, probably not appropriate. And in general, I, I haven't had many patients that have been socially. Um, I, I do have friends who have come to me as patients so friends who call, um, you know, with floaters or um, I've, I've had a situation where I was on call and actually a family member, not a direct family member by blood, but um, somebody had a, a retinal problem that needed treatment and I was on call and I felt like it was appropriate for me to do that treatment for them. So I think you just have to um, look uh I think look at the, each individual situation and see what feels like the right decision at the time I as mean, far as boundaries. I mean, so it will, you know, Nathan Steinle, mentioned earlier, he's flying to the final four in Minneapolis on Monday. And let's say you have a, a, a patient who calls you and is like, you know, Nathan Steinle's got fifth row seats, but I've got first row seats <laughs> and you love basketball. Will you want to come sit with me at the game, go to the championship game Monday. You did my detachment. I see great 2020 vision. It's been six months. We're not worried about PVR. Your external drain prevented from getting any PVR. Are you going to take those tickets? I mean, you're making it very hard, but I don't think I take those tickets. But it seems like you're implying Nathan's also offering me his tickets. Uh, oh, so I, I, I have no problem taking right. those tickets. Uh, but it's, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those issues, quite frankly, that all, a lot of these issues I don't think about very much on a daily basis. And we should be thinking that's because you and I don't get as many gifts as Margaret and Nico. Um, perhaps I mean, that's what it is. I mean, but I, I just, I just, we have uh, personality flaws. You know, I got to admit, I, I have, I don't have a mental framework for how to handle that situation in place. And I should have a mental framework to, for how to handle that in place. And I'll just echo the comment that I think it was courageous, not on the, only on the part of Dr. Pulifita, but quite frankly, the organizing committee for putting him on the schedule and a tribute to how BBS thinks a little differently and tries to kind of give people a different perspectives on relevant topics. That, that probably yes. wasn't, not an easy decision to make, but it was a good one. Yes, I think I think the organizing committee did an amazing job of uh, incorporating a lot of diversity. Cover my ears this is, uh, <laughs> we had a lot of representation of women. We had a, a lot of, um, was it the largest turnout for the conference so far? Uh, we were able to honor Dr. Carl Vigillo, who has been a mentor to many. Um, and they provided a very nice uh, gift this year, the laptop case, which uh, I have to say has high utility, and I appreciate that. Shout out to our Saudi <laughs> colleagues who came after hearing about Bitbuckle on the podcast, which is cool, and they liked the whole park. I told Will he didn't believe me, but out there. <laughs> um, last thing before we go, because we got the social tonight, and uh, I actually need to send this episode out, so it goes up Monday. Um, one, if you had a one-liner, best one-liner you heard, Pearl, you heard during the meeting, I will take the hanging through while you guys think and say what I thought. Ali Khan, my, one of my good friends, colleagues, program, friend of the program, they asked him uh, final pearls about complications. He said, you got advice from Dr. James Vander when he was a fellow to keep your complications close and keep giving them your cell phone and watch them very, very closely and uh, try to see them more often. That's not a one-liner, but it was one sentence. Um, <laughs> big pearls, pearl learning points you want to share out there that you heard this weekend? Will? Uh, this isn't quite as philosophical and broad, but uh, I really liked Eric Noodleman's talk on um, pediatric uh, retinal surgery and his two points about you have to know when not to do too much and know when to go ahead and be a little more aggressive, and that's the that's the trick specifically in pediatric retinal surgery. Or that was in great. all retinal surgery. Well, in all retinal surgery, <laughs> but but, uh, kids, but, but in kids, it's even maybe a little bit more of a of a you know a complexity to it. Nika. 
Uh, I am going to quote uh, Dr. Margaret Grevin here, where she said that she likes to use uh, triessence early and often. I think, in general, um, you know, I would have a low threshold to stain, obtain better visualization in any format that I could. And maybe use proportional yeah. reflux and to yeah. stain with. <laughs> yes. yes. Margaret? Um, well, so I have two. The first one is not necessarily a surgical pearl, but I really liked today when Dean Elliott said that we should all sleep more. That was great. Yeah. That was, um, that was so one of my great. favorite pieces of advice. We don't have one of his fellows, and I yes. need to ask Yoshi this, but apparently, and he was a resident and a fellow, but apparently the, the apocryphal story of St. Margaret is that Dean Elliott, who I've asked numerous times to come to the program, but is very reclusive, much like the people that Dr. Felipe referenced, Beatty Salinger and Thomas Pynchon, but Dean Elliott apparently sleeps in his office between cases. He has a couch in his office and takes the turnover time to go and take a quick nap between cases, um, which probably explains the photographic memory to some part. That and I, I love the civilized start time to the OR, the 8, 8.30 start time. That sounds amazing. I have to start doing that. What was your second one, Margaret? Um, this isn't exactly surgical, but there was that entire panel talking about intravitreal injections and um, different people's techniques. And um, I, I'm thinking about normally I wear gloves for all of my intravitreal injections, which takes about 30 seconds per patient to put on. And... Um, a lot of people don't wear gloves, and there's, they're not sterile gloves, and you're using betadine on the injection site. And so I'm thinking about not wearing, trying out not wearing gloves mm -hmm. for my intravitreal injections and trying to save some time. It would be interesting to get patient perceptions on this because I think that is, I think we all understand it probably doesn't matter. It's not a sterile procedure. My worry has always been that for patients who don't necessarily understand always what we're doing, um, we explain some things they don't understand what's sterile, what's not. They're used to seeing people use gloves when they draw your blood and when they put an IV or do anything. Um, and so to a family member, if there was a problem, the perception, even though we know that it doesn't make a difference, you know, a lot of people don't do it. And this is kind of one of the things that was interesting about meeting. There's this constant back and forth, which we're all encountering is how much do perceptions matter versus reality, right? Does it matter, as Dr. Miko says, that you have that you have lots of reviews on the board doesn't. I mean, is it pragmatic to say that you should wear gloves because you're trying to do patient-centered care if the patient believes that you should do it? Or is it to say, well, this is a cost-effective maneuver, and actually you can say besides efficiency, it's costing the system more to use gloves, and it's probably bad for the environment to use more gloves from an environmental perspective. Well, but as Dr. Ho point. said, if we all don't wear gloves, then patients won't have that perception. That so. sounds like a collusion, <laughs> but I think it's legal in this case. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining me. Um, any uh, party thoughts while you're flipping through the program? I don't know if you're looking for more for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm I'm looking for uh, Ajay's talk because I feel bad he's not here right now, and I want oh, to give him a shout he, out. He got out talk. before the president arrived, which uh, was great. Uh, um, so he gave a talk on intraoperative OCT, uh, which we've talked about at length in the program. He did a great talk, and I think that the one thing he mentioned that he's doing research on is interesting. It was looking at he, mentioned, he said a lot of interesting things. Which, by the way, the yeah. one thing I really thought was cool was. Looking at PVR with OCT to make a prediction of can you peel this or do you need to cut it? Yes. Is it intrinsic or extrinsic? And I think that it would be interesting to compare that versus experienced surgeon, Spidey Sense, which Will is the experienced surgeon here, to look at something, kind of understand what you need to do. But that's an efficiency maneuver and maybe also spare retina maneuver, which we all know is sparing retina is a good thing if you get the same result. Can I just once be the young person on your panel? I'm feeling bad, man. I'm always the oldest person on your panel. I mean, you're on the verge of aging out, unfortunately. Yeah, you're like the Benjamin Button. You're just going to keep coming on more and more. Well, guys, thanks so much for coming. We're going to go to the social event now for, again, uh, enjoy the meeting. The next meeting will be next year, and we'll, we'll pilot that. will be March 26 to 28, 2020 uh, in Miami, uh, which will be um, my shortest commute to a meeting uh, of the year. So thanks again for doing this, and uh, take care. Thank you. Thank you. 
feeling? This is straight from the cutter's mouth. 